I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 26 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, July the 30th. First, I'll be talking to Ted Dunstone, MD, founder of Biometrics and Bixalab, one of only two labs in the world accredited for international biometric identity standards and world-renowned biometric and identity expert, talking about what is actually a workable vaccine passport certificate that will be recognised internationally. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslake about the impact of the lockdowns on the economy. But now let's talk to Ted Dunstone. Tell me, uh, what's actually a workable vaccine passport certificate that will be recognised internationally? Development, obviously, for vaccine passports is uh, you know, a pretty critical uh, aspect of getting life back to normal. And so there's a a lot of work which has been happening internationally, but it's been very interesting to watch from the sidelines because the, you know, there needs to be a broad agreement internationally on the way forward on this. And it has been very difficult to find the right forum for that broad agreement. So that means uh, passports won't be recognised in various countries? Well, if if the international standards are not set up properly, that would be the the outcome would be that uh, you you have for bilateral or multilateral agreements, but you can't just take your passport and have it recognised anywhere, which, of course, is, is really what's what's needed. So how do we get this sort of system going? Well, I mean, there are a whole range of different uh, institutions internationally that are working on this problem, as I mentioned. So uh, the WHO has uh, has one, IATA has one, there's one, so IATA is the International Travel Organisation, and then there's the uh, ICAO, which is the passport standards. They also have a, a standard uh, called the Digital Tra- uh, Traveller Credential, which they're looking to leverage for putting, putting vaccines. The EU has implemented a sort of a vaccine passport um, internally, and it's yet we've yet to see a real uh, consensus on exactly the, the right path forward, uh, but there are some leading contenders. Would there be an issue because there are different vaccines available and there's different credentials on how, on the effic- efficacy of each of those? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's entirely possible that you will end up with some vaccines being recognised in one place and, and not in another. Um, the Sinovacs, for instance, is a classic case where that some countries, so I, I believe it's actually mandatory if you're going into China, 
that you have to be vaccinated with Sinovacs. So it's interesting how that will end up playing out. But obviously, the vaccine passport will need to record enough information so that the, the recipient country can make sure that the person really has got a vaccine that's compatible with, with their risk level. So the passport would have to specify the kind of vaccine that was administered? Yeah, and also the conditions under which it was administered. You know, there, there, there may be other informations in addition to, you know, exactly what type. So obviously, and the location that it was administered within the country might also be relevant factors. So, so what are various countries doing on vaccine passports, certifications? Yeah, look, there are, there are a range of different uh, schemes which have been implemented. And uh, as I mentioned, the, the EU has uh, a, a program which I don't believe or may be partially rolled out now. But there's a really just been a lot of bespoke type um, internal applications being developed. So probably the the leading contender internationally would have to be the, as far as I'm aware, it's really the IATA app, which uh, the IATA, but it it basically is a representative organisation for many of those in the aviation industry. So it comes with a lot of credentials already, and they've put together uh, an app which is out and, and in testing, and which has been already adopted by a number of carriers. And if you know, you, you got enough uh, carriers that were accepting it. I suspect there would be momentum building around that becoming kind of a global a global standard. Also, IATA is making that app freely available. And there are some other nice things about the way that it's been implemented as well. Right, okay. So the key would be actually we're still some way off from getting a global vaccine passport system. I, I think that's a, a fair statement. I, I do... I think it's surprising to me how long this process has taken, given that everybody's known that it's been critically important, but it shows you how difficult these um, multilateral things from a global perspective really are to to push through. And it goes to show how we're going to have constraints on international travel for quite some time. Yeah, undoubtedly. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a real, it's a real challenge. Um, And I think, but uh, you know, the, the key, one of the key aspects, we need to make sure that when these these schemes are adopted, that they are um, obviously internationally recognised, that they've got the right information, but they don't overshare information, right? You don't want vaccine, the people to have, you hear vaccine hesitancy, you don't want them to have vaccine passport hesitancy because the, the vaccine passport hasn't been appropriately tested or, or assured. Is there a black market in certificates and passports? There, there certainly have been instances that have been documented um, of people presenting uh, false certificates associated with vaccines. So mostly they're kind of printed certificates at the moment. I'm not aware of any fake digital certificates that have been generated, largely because there isn't that much of uh, infrastructure available. But certainly... We are, we're heading into a world where those that have been vaccinated will enjoy privileges and uh, those privileges will not be insignificant. So there will be definitely a marketplace for those that either can't or, or haven't had vaccinations to try and, and circumvent that. Well, that, that's quite alarming. And, and uh, so how can Australia make sure that our approach is recognised in other countries and anchored to individuals yeah um so there are i mean australia obviously has a lot of uh, great uh, engagement 
internationally in the various forums that set passport standards and, and other uh, related sorts of uh, activities. I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, there was an announcement by the government just very recently about the fact that there would be an announcement coming soon around how they uh, were going to be able to offer essentially vaccine certificates. They may have had a different wording for it, but um, using, for instance, the Apple iWallet even uh, as a, a mechanism. But the issues around making sure that the certificate uh, uh, is bound to a particular identity uh, are, are quite important. And so uh, to, to that end, certainly I think it's really important to make sure that we've got good testing regimes. So that's testing of the application and also testing around the uh, credentialing aspect to make sure that it's not susceptible to the sort of fraud we talked about before. Um, and that, and so I, I uh, run a, an organisation, um, one organisation of which does testing for certification of uh, these sorts of identity-related products, and that, that organisation is called Bixie Lab. Um, and it's the only, only the second organisation in the world that's certified to test these sort of identity-related um, applications. Well, that, that's that's quite striking. So, uh, yeah, we, we definitely need the infrastructure to actually start testing this stuff, don't we? Yeah, I, I like to think it's, it, you know, testing is very important for COVID and vaccine related purposes to check to see uh, people's uh, status, but it's also important for every, you know, we rely on it for everything. And I think there is often a case where there's a rush to use these apps and use other uh, digital infrastructure uh, without having had it independently tested and certified. And I, I think that that's a, that's a mistake because, you know, uh, whilst you might get things out faster, the, um, the downstream consequences of having something which doesn't perform in the way that you expect it to perform uh, are quite severe, particularly in this space. Now, uh, we've been 18 months into this pandemic and we're still no closer to getting a global vaccine passport system going how long do you think it will be till we have that look i i I would i mean it's hard to imagine that it's going to be sooner than another six months but if i was um i i would lay i would say there's going to be a uh, you know there's a significant demand at the moment around this so i don't think it will be the time horizon for this will be you know years but it might be up to 12 months and what we will start to see is these regional blocky, these regional blocks, like the, for instance, the EU. And the, I think the question becomes whether some of those regional blocks end up dictating the terms of the global uh, rollout. And I think it's really important that Australia is, uh, you know, very heavily involved and and part of that process because. There is a situation where we are engaged um, at a high level in these international forums, and then essentially we have to accept what other countries have already decided. Well, Ted, that's uh, all very illuminating stuff and quite worried. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. And now let's talk to economist Saul Leslie. Well, Saul, economists are saying the lockdowns around the country are going to drive down economic growth by about $10 billion, and uh, some are predicting negative growth in the third quarter. What's your view about that? Well, it depends ultimately on how long the lockdowns last. $10 billion sounds like a lot of money. Indeed, even the $1 billion a week that has been widely used as an estimate of the cost of Sydney's lockdown, so you'd need to add a bit more onto that 
for Victoria's and now South Australian's lockdown is also a lot of money to you or me, but it needs to be seen in the context of the Australian economy being a more than $2 trillion a year or $500 billion a quarter economy, or if you like, a $38 billion a week economy. So if the lockdown in New South Wales lasts for about 10 weeks, which is a pessimistic estimate in my view, then it is quite plausible that growth in the September quarter could be negative. However, we know from the experience of previous lockdowns, including the most recent Victorian one, that when people do eventually emerge from lockdown, the economy bounces back quite strongly. We've seen that happen after all the previous lockdowns, and it's evident not just in GDP data, but in shorter term indicators like retail sales and housing starts and employment. Indeed, something that was quite striking about the June employment data that was released earlier this month is that Although that survey coincided with the full lockdown in Victoria, Victoria's fourth lockdown, the unemployment rate in Victoria actually fell to 4.4%. What happened, as the detail of the Labor Force survey showed us, is that employers kept people on, partly because the federal and state governments provided some assistance to businesses to do that, but a significant number of people, though counted as employed, uh, worked zero hours. So that total hours worked in Victoria during June fell by 8.4%. Now, I think we're going to see a bigger version of that when the July numbers come out, because of course it'll be affecting New South Wales, which is a bigger state, as well as Victoria and possibly South Australia as well. But since the federal and state governments have now instituted schemes designed to assist businesses so that they don't go broke and don't have to lay off their workers, indeed, I think it's a condition of businesses receiving that assistance in New South Wales, at least, that they don't lay off their workers, that I think we'll see employ unemployment remain pretty low by historical standards. We'll certainly see falls in retail sales in New South Wales because of the inclusion of construction within the lockdown that didn't happen in Victoria. We'll see a downturn in construction activity. But I think we'll see most of those categories rebound quickly when the various states emerge from their lockdowns. Uh, well, there's obviously a lot of stimulus going into it as well, isn't there? Well, yes, there is. Not as much, to be sure, as there was last year while JobKeeper was in play and while people who were out of work were getting higher levels of assistance each week under JobSeeker with a coronavirus supplement. That's not there anymore. But the federal government's cash flow boost for small business is there. So uh, I think the experience that we now have from last year and from the shorter lockdowns that have occurred in Queensland, in Victoria, in Western Australia says that while you obviously can't make up for the cups of coffee and the gym sessions that people don't have during lockdowns, the other things that people put off buying because they're not allowed out and or because the stores are closed will be made up 
fairly quickly. The broader consequence, however, I think is that because Australia has found itself in a position where so few of its people have been fully vaccinated, that there is, as the premiers say, no alternative to imposing lockdowns in order to catch people from from in order to prevent people from catching this much more infectious version of COVID-19, the so-called Delta variant. Whereas if we look at other countries like the US and the UK that mishandled the pandemic last year when suppression was really the only effective strategy, Australia's economic performance isn't going to look so favourable in nine months' time as it does at the moment. At the moment, Australia can say, along with New Zealand and Taiwan, that we're the only advanced economies where the level of real GDP and employment is higher than it was before the onset of the pandemic. But we probably won't look nearly as good in a year's time uh, perhaps when we're going to the next election, uh, relative to other countries as we do at the moment, because those other countries have taken the alternative strategy, which wasn't available last year, of vaccinating as much of their population as quickly as they possibly can. That allows them to avoid lockdowns in the way that four Australian states have now experienced so far this year. And uh, I think that will show up in comparisons of economic performance with other countries as time goes by. So where do you see that? How do you see that affecting our GDP? Well, I think what it means is that we will experience slower growth in GDP over the next three or four quarters than countries such as the United States, the United Kingdom and other European countries who, because they're going to get to critical levels of vaccination of their populations much sooner than we will, will be able to open up and allow their economies to enjoy sustainable recoveries. You see, the other potentially negative consequence of these recurring lockdowns in Australia is not simply the loss of activity that occurs while they're in place, but the damaging impact on confidence, and in particular confidence to create new jobs and to undertake new investment, from the very real prospect that uh, we will be locked down again and again. It's sort of like John Howard's famous five minutes of sunshine that he talked about when interest rates started going up in 1994, that if you go back to, say, September last year in most of Australia and December last year in Victoria, there was a sort of sense that, OK, we've been through a lockdown, that was nasty, but we've suppressed the virus and we can now start returning to normal. And that, I think, has been a factor in the strengthening in employment and the upturn in business investment and the willingness to commit to buying new houses that's been an important factor in Australia's economic recovery. But I think that confidence is at risk of having been shattered by the repeated lockdowns that have now occurred in five of Australia's six states plus the Northern Territory and the knowledge with this more infectious version of corona that we will probably have more of these lockdowns between now and whenever it is, long after most other countries, that 80% or more of us will have been vaccinated. And that, I think, needs to be sheeted home to the choices that the federal government made at different points last year when they chose to put almost all of their vaccine eggs in the AstraZeneca basket, 
partly because AstraZeneca was a lot cheaper than Pfizer or Moderna, but also out of what I think was a misplaced obsession with what they call sovereignty, that is the idea that AstraZeneca could be manufactured in Australia, which it has been, but at a slower pace than was originally promised. We were told repeatedly by the Prime Minister that it wasn't a race. Uh, the reality is that it is a race. It's a race against the virus, as we now know, particularly its Delta form. It's a race against other countries if you're concerned about relative economic performance. And it's a race in which Australia is now well behind the leaders. The other interesting part about these, uh, the virus is that uh, we have closed borders, and uh, which means immigration is low. And a lot of Australia's growth has come out of immigration. Uh, that's certainly true. And over the last 10 years, a lot of Australia's GDP growth and employment growth has been fueled by migration. The Governor of the Reserve Bank made what I think was an important point in a speech early in July to the Economic Society in Queensland, where he pointed out that temporary migrants have played some role in dampening wages growth and in relieving businesses from the obligation they used to shoulder to train locals to do jobs that might require some additional on-the-job training. I think the Governor of the Reserve Bank has been mischaracterised as being in favour of lower permanent migration. I don't think he is. And my view certainly is that Australia's permanent migration intake not only has boosted GDP growth, but has also boosted per capita GDP growth because of the skills which our permanent migrants bring with them, as well, of course, the myriad other ways in which they enrich Australia's life. But temporary migrants, uh, while there are obviously IT professionals and others among them, it would seem that a lot of our temporary migrants programs actually meet demands for unskilled workers. And in that sense, like some of the migration programs in the United States and Europe, uh, they actually put downward pressure on wages and don't really contribute significantly to per capita GDP growth. Now, there's a separate question arising from the short-term closure of Australian borders. Uh, and it's worth mentioning here that Australia has been far more restrictive in closing its borders than any other democratically governed nation. You know, in fact, so unusual is Australia's bans on people leaving and its periodic bans on citizens coming back to Australia. They are so unusual that the compilers of the widely quoted Oxford Index of the stringency of government measures didn't even think of including measures like that in their index of how strict government measures could be. Um, but what that's in effect done is force Australians to spend the more than $50 billion a year they'd have preferred to spend overseas on domestic things, which have boosted retail sales and employment. It's also meant that those Australians who are looking for jobs don't have to compete as they might otherwise have done with recently arrived migrants, so that the hurdle rate in terms of net new jobs created per month required to keep the unemployment rate on a downward trajectory is a lot less than it used to be. In the 10 years prior to the onset of the pandemic, Australia needed to create at least 16,000 new jobs a month in order to get the unemployment rate to fall. As it happens, 
that's about the rate at which we did create new jobs over the 10 years to 2020, which is why the unemployment rate was essentially unchanged at just over 5% between December 2009 and December 2019. But with the population now growing at less than 10,000 a month, we only need to create about 6,000 new jobs a month in order to push the unemployment rate down. We've actually created 47,000 new jobs a month on average so far during 2021. If we kept doing that until June next year, when the budget assumes that the borders are going to reopen again, the unemployment rate would be 1.3% by June next year. Now, I don't think we're going to keep creating jobs at 47,000 a month, but even if we created them at a quarter of that rate, that is at about 12,000 a month, then by June next year, the unemployment rate would be almost down to 4%, which the Reserve Bank appears to think should be sufficient to generate the sort of wages growth that would in turn push the inflation rate back into its 2 to 3% target range, which is why I think in part as a side effect of the closure of Australia's borders, uh, we could be seeing interest rates starting to move up before the Reserve Bank's stated time of 2024. Well, we'll watch that uh, with a lot of interest. And uh, so, Les Lake, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure, Leon. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, extreme weather is slamming crops across the globe, bringing with it the threat of further food inflation at a time costs are already hovering near the highest in a decade and hunger is on the rise. Brazil's worst frost in two decades brought a deadly blow to young coffee trees in the world's biggest grower. Flooding in China's key pork region inundated farms and raised the threat of animal disease. Scorching heat and drought crushed crops on both sides of the US-Canada border. And in Europe, torrential rains sparked the risk of fungal diseases for grains and stalled tractors in soaked fields. Coffee is the biggest recent mover, with prices surging 17% this week and topping $2 a pound for the first time since 2014. Arabica coffee futures are hitting fresh highs and extending a dramatic rally, with more crop-destroying cold temperatures heading to Brazil, the world's top growers. Prices for the high-end beans favoured by Starbucks and other cafe chains have surged more than 30% in a week and will eventually top US $3 a pound, according to Judy Gaines, a consultant with decades of experience in the industry. The last time coffee hit US $3 was in 2011, but the recent frost in Brazil is just the latest example of woes that have struck farmers there this year. Brazil's also experiencing a, tr a crippling drought that depleted reservoirs needed for irrigation. The series of misfortunes underscores what scientists have been warning about for years. Climate change and its associated weather volatility will make it increasingly hard to produce enough food for the world, with the poorest nations typically feeling the hardest blow. In some cases, social and political unrest follows. The food price index from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization rose for 12 consecutive months through May before easing in June to 124.6 points, still up 34% from a year earlier. The index measures international prices of a basket of food commodities. And having escaped a technical recession for nearly three decades, Australia is at risk of two in the space of just over a year. The technical definition of a recession is two straight quarters of the economy shrinking. The thing that might save Australia, ironically, is that the current September quarter may be so bad that it will be hired for the three months leading up to Christmas to be any worse. Despite this, economists do concede there are scenarios where Australia might fall into recession again this year. The first official confirmation of economic trouble came midway through last week, 
when the Bureau of Statistics released its June retail sales report. Retail trade fell by 1.8% in the month, much higher than market expectations of a small fall, with food retailing the only sector to record a rise as people stopped eating out and cooked at home instead. So it's contraction in the retail sector, the canary in the coal mine. EY Chief Economist Joe Masters believes so, noting it is very likely that the economy will contract in the September quarter with strict lockdowns across New South Wales, Victoria and now South Australia. The Commonwealth Bank's Head of Australian Economics, Gareth Aird, said lockdowns, by their very nature, grind much economic activity to a halt. The vast majority of economists now expect a negative September quarter followed by a rebound in December. A key assumption many are making to arrive at this forecast is that the current lockdowns won't be significantly extended and there won't be any further major lockdowns later this year. Chair in Epidemiology at Deakin University, Catherine Bennett, believes that's a rosy assumption. And the Morrison government is resisting demands to return to the JobKeeper wage subsidy, but is examining enhancing the current system of business and income payments, including extending support to welfare recipients. The federal government has already handed out about $350 million in income support to adversely affected New South Wales workers, but the separate system of Commonwealth state-funded cash payments to distress small and medium businesses, which is administered by the state government, only began this week. With a lockdown of Greater Sydney set to last indefinitely, some business groups and leaders joined calls for a return to JobKeeper, but the Business Council of Australia instead called for the current system of business support payments to be enhanced so that the payments were not capped as a percentage of payroll, and the big business was also eligible for the payments. It also recommended the income support payments be substantially increased. Speaking ahead of a meeting of the Expenditure Review Committee on Monday afternoon, where new options were discussed, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said the current system of income and business payments effectively replicated JobKeeper. However, Mr Frydenberg said the government would again amend the assistance measures, which have already been altered three times in six weeks, in response to the challenges posed by the Delta variant of coronavirus. And Temple and Webster's earnings more than doubled in the 12 months ending June, as the online retailer reaped the twin benefits of a boom in spending on the home and shift to e-commerce during the pandemic. Unaudited earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation rose 141% to $20.5 million as revenue soared 85% to $326.3 million, driven by strong growth in the new and repeat customers and average for order values. The number of active customers rose 62% to 778000 and revenue per active customer rose 12%. This is a strong shift towards online shopping and spending on homewares and furniture as consumers cocoon at home. Sales rose 26% in the June quarter 2021, compared with 130% in the June quarter 2020. The solid growth continued into 2022, with revenue in July to date rising 39%. And Indigenous tourism operators say their industry can't last much longer without travellers from Sydney, as the nation's largest city enters its second month of lockdown. Since the latest lockdown in Greater Sydney began, cancellations have been coming in thick and fast. According to a COVID-19 recovery plan for the industry, published last year by Tourism Research Australia, the Indigenous tourism sector was left particularly vulnerable by the international border closure. That's because Australians are less likely than overseas visitors to spend money on Indigenous operators. In 2019, 11% of international visitors participated in Indigenous tourism activities, compared to just 1% of Australian tourists. In that same year, 181,000 domestic visitors took part in Aboriginal tourism activities in New South Wales, compared to 333,000 international tourists, mainly from Europe and North America. New South Wales isn't the only jurisdiction where businesses are struggling. Operators in the Northern Territory, where the government is aiming to become the country's leading Indigenous tourism destination by 2030, are also seeing a downturn. 
In 2019, 67% of international visitors to NT participated in Aboriginal tourism activities, compared to just 16% of Australian tourists. And the global move away from fossil fuels will cost two in three workers their jobs across regions such as Hunter Valley and central Queensland over the next three decades, according to a report that argues the impact will be even worse without investor support for a fair transition, leaving workers in those regions, home to the coming federal election's most critical swing suits, to fend for themselves, will result in even worse outcome, costing as many as 75% of the existing workforce their livelihoods. Either way, the industry's job exodus is expected to be about three times the 27,500 jobs lost by late 2017, when Ford, Holden, Toyota closed their factories. The findings in a provocative report based on research by EY Australia for the Influential Investor Group on Climate Change suggests that the move to net zero emissions is both inevitable and throws up huge opportunities for new jobs and economic growth, but only for countries that get ahead of the curve. The group's members are made up of some of Australia's biggest investors, including Australian Super, BlackRock, PIMCO and AMP Capital, and currently manage more than $2 trillion in assets. The report, which comes less than 100 days before the much-anticipated United Nations Climate Summit in Glasgow, urges Australia to lift its climate commitments and develop concrete plans for the transition towards greener energy. And Boral Chief Executive Zlatko Todorchevsky has sold off yet another business as a building products group, which is now controlled by billionaire Kerry Stokes 7 Group Holdings, slims down further. The company announced it had offloaded its Australian timber business, which sells decking and flooring products, to Melbourne-based Pentarch Group for $64.5 million. Pentarch has different divisions and operates a forestry business that exports about 800,000 tonnes of plantation softwood and hardwood timber annually. Mr Todorchevsky said the sale was in line with the, with the strategy of concentrating on the core operations of boral, of cement, concrete, asphalt and quarrying products used in the construction sector. And Federal Labor has dumped its signature housing policy of winding back negative gearing after two election losses, while putting itself on a campaign footing by ending its long-time opposition to scheduled tax cuts for high-income earners. Anthony Albanese's shadow cabinet settled on the position on Monday morning before Labor's caucus formally endorsed it in a teleconference with virtually no objections. However, it has triggered a blowback from within the party's progressive membership base after more than 18 months of fierce internal debate. And Crown Resorts has paid the Victorian government $6.1 million in taxes and penalties after evading the state's gambling tax for nine years. But the total figure Crown may have to pay could be as high as $480 million, council assisting the Victorian Royal Commission said in damning closing submissions last week, which recommended the cancellation of Crown's licence. Crown disputes this figure, but told the market laced on Tuesday the Victorian casino regulator will advise on the final amount owing after the Royal Commission. Commissioner Ray Finkelstein, QC, will report on October 15 on whether the James Packard Group should be allowed to run the sprawling South Bank Casino complex. Crown said in the statement that penalty interest makes up just over a third, $24 million, of a payment Crown made to the Victorian casino regulator for evading the tax since 2012. An AMP has dumped the tarnished business model that made it Australia's largest provider of financial advice for generations, granting its advisors long-sought ownership of their, of their clients and freedom to choose investments and technology. The 172-year-old wealth manager has heralded a new era of financial advice, hiking licence fees while removing the handcuffs stopping them from joining rivals. Under the reform model, AMP will abandon its long-standing and controversial practice of buying firms from its advisers when they retire, known as the buy-of-last-resort policy. 
Cessation of the controversial buy of last resort, or BOLR, policy from the end of this year will allow aligned firms to sell their businesses on the open market when they retire, instead of being forced to sell to AMP at a discount. BOLR has long been a plank of AMP's recruitment pitch and strategy to become Australia's largest financial advisor, a mantle it held for decades, but relinquished in June when rivals IOOF and MLC Wealth merged. But the policy was scorched by the Hain Royal Commission for being based on a methodology that favoured advisors who sold higher volume volumes of AMP's insurance investment products under the much maligned system of vertical integration. It will relinquish legal ownership of clients to those advisors, allowing them to more freely move to AMP rivals or apply for their own licence. It will also allow its advisors to use competitor administration and investment technology despite their historical contribution to the flagship's North platform. And Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Mac Komen has called for Parliament to regulate Apple's rapid growth in the payment system and accused the world's largest company of free riding on banks' investment. As governments around the world grapple with how to contain the growing power of the tech giants, Mr Komen told a parliamentary joint committee on Tuesday that Apple's iPhones were being used for 80% of the smartphone tap-and-go payments and restrictions on bank access to iPhone chips that communicate with payment terminals were anti-competitive. CBA and Apple are locked in a fight for control of billions of dollars card payments that are made with mobile phones. Apple is nudged into financial services with Apple Pay, which is used by 9,000 global banks, including Australia's Big Four, to digitise payments cards. But Apple insists only its digital wallet can access the iPhone's near-field communication, or NFC, chip. This means the bank app cannot make a tap-and-go directly, which CBA argues limits the functionality of its app for consumers. Banks also have to pay Apple a fee of a few cents for every $100 of transactions as the payment passes through the Apple system, which industry sources suggest could be heading towards $100 million a year. Apple says putting all payments through its wallet is necessary to guarantee security, and it is appropriate it receives revenue from banks given its investment to create secure devices. But Mr Coman said Apple Pay had become an essential service in payments, and its sheer size meant Parliament must pay close attention to the rules the tech giant placed around access to its smartphone infrastructure. Both Australian Competition Consumer Commission and the Reserve Bank of Australia told the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services that Apple's restrictions on access to the NFC could create issues for competition law. And Eden Brew, a startup backed by the CSIRO's venture capital arm and Norco, Australia's oldest dairy cooperative with annual revenue of $683 million, has raised $4 million as it accelerates growth on producing milk without using any cows. The company says it's about 18 months away from having products on the market and its milk has the same taste, look and sensory feel as normal dairy milk. It's been making the product in conjunction with the CSIRO at a Werribee plant in Victoria and is now stepping up smaller scale commercial production. Eden Brew Chief Executive Jim Fader said the product made in the lab has exactly the same characteristics as dairy milk coming from a cow. He said about 15% of the milk market in Australia is made up of non-dairy offerings made from soy, almonds and oats and the segment is growing fast. Eden Brew is targeting that segment as consumers become increasingly concerned about climate change and the impact on the atmosphere of methane from the millions of cows and dairy herds. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Real Bergen Doyle, a local Australian business growth strategist and billion dollar disruptor who has a passion for SMEs. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the state of Australia's economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 